Well, dear friends, if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. As we continue our series and the love of God, as we reflect upon His love to us as people, we come to these opening verses of Jeremiah 31 and trust that they will help us to view God rightly. Well, before we read this passage, let us ask our Father to give us the Spirit that we may understand His Word. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we do pray that You would grant to us the Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of You. Lord, it is You alone who can make us to see wonderful things written in Your law. And Lord, we ask that You would come near to us We pray that You would give us ears that hear and hearts that are receptive, and You would use Your Word to transform us. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Holy Word from Jeremiah 31, again, verses 1 to 3. This is the infallible Word of the everlasting God. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Well, this is God's Word. Brethren, please be seated. So as I mentioned, we're coming in our study of the love of God now to a third reflection on that love. And as we do so, we're continuing to trace out the attributes of our Father's love. Now, last time we saw from Deuteronomy 7 and 10 that our God's love is unconditional. He sets His love on us for nothing in us. In fact, while we were stubborn, foolish, and altogether unlovely, our Lord set His affection on us and called us to Himself. And on such unmerited love, love that truly surpasses all comprehension, our souls should ponder. We should see that love which is rich and full and free and bless the Lord. But this morning, we come to take up another attribute of the love of God, and we're seeing it here from Jeremiah 31, and namely, the attribute we're considering is that God's love is everlasting. Now, before we explore that, we need to set the context a bit of Jeremiah's message. You may have slogged your way through reading Jeremiah. It's not an easy book to read because Jeremiah's entire ministry was chiefly one of judgment. He was called as a young man to declare all the evils that the covenant people had committed in forsaking the Lord. His ministry spans about 40 years, the last 40 years of the kingdom of Judah. And Jeremiah is persistently rebuking them for their unfaithfulness and idolatry, and presumption. His most famous sermon is the temple sermon of Jeremiah 7, which Jesus quotes when He comes to cleanse the temple. 
as he tells the Pharisees and others that they've turned God's house of prayer into a, here's the Jeremiah quote, a den of robbers. It's interesting, just as an aside, that when people were asking questions as to who Jesus was, some suggested Jeremiah. That as many heard the multiple warnings that Jesus is giving, calling down judgment on God's unfaithful people, and then seeing Him as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and they associated Jesus with the weeping prophet, Jeremiah. Well, in all Jeremiah's preaching, maybe his most memorable reproof is Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13. And he says this, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see, in, in the Lord, our covenant God, we have all we could ever want. Everything to satisfy us. But our problem is we run away from the only source of satisfaction and we look to broken cisterns. A place that we can never get satisfaction. And even Mick Jagger recognizes this. It's true. I can't get no satisfaction. He's clearly not a grammarian. But he understands the problem with man. Now, Jeremiah doesn't only assail God's people, however, as godless covenant violators, though they were. He also called them to the Lord. He called them, pled with them to acknowledge their guilt and to put away their idolatry. Unfortunately, it was all to to, to no avail. He warned them of impending doom, namely the coming destruction of the Babylonians and an exile to follow. But they just scoffed at his message. He was a hated man. He was abused. He was mocked. But amidst the wide-scale rejection, there were some who were, as a remnant, listening to the Word of God. And for them, though coming judgment is unavoidable, there remains hope. And that hope, brethren, is rooted in the covenant love of God which cannot cease and which cannot be thwarted even by the sin of God's people. So in the middle of Jeremiah, in chapters 30 to 33, we have what has been called the book of consolation or the book of comfort. It's really a breath of fresh air, a valley of refreshing amidst these mountains of declared wrath. And in the midst of that book, Jeremiah pours out God's promises of restoration, of Messiah, and of the hope of being forgiven your sin. And it's in this comfort section that the Lord is relating to His people the nature of His love. Now if you look again at the text, Jeremiah 31 verse 1, He says to His people, in the latter days, or after I've restored Jacob, at that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be My people. Here's a promise of kingdoms that have been split being brought back together. No more separation between Israel and Judah. But there's more than that. Here's a promise of God being present among them, which is the very foundational covenant word. However, with exile still on the horizon and Jerusalem's destruction a certainty, the faithful may well wonder, 
How can they depend on the Lord or anything else in this moment? You know, it's wonderful to have those promises that echo throughout time, but what hope do we have right now? Because everything we hold dear, the temple, its worship, our homes, the land, it's all going to be lost. Will they survive the attack? Will they be sustained? Can they have any certainty that they will make it through to see better days? Will all of God's promises come crashing down? Well, in the face of all of these fears, the Lord points out His past kindness to their father, and He, reject, he, he points them to, to the one constant amidst it all, and that is His love. So I'm going to do something I, I never do. I'm going to preach a sermon with one point. The declaration of God's love. Now, as we get down to verse 3, I'll, I'll break this up a little more for those of you who are taking notes. But we're looking at the declaration of God's love. Now, in verse 2, the covenant God is comforting His anxious people by telling them they need to look backwards. Thus says the Lord, the people who survive the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. And the words wilderness, Israel, and rest immediately remind the hearers of a certain period of time, which you probably remember. It's the Exodus and what comes right after. It's true that Israel survived the sword of Egypt. You remember Pharaoh marched out after the tenth plague with his chariots and his horsemen and his army, chasing down the Israelites. But though that mighty army threatened them, and Israel would have been decimated if God had not intervened, the Lord not only caused the waters to part and Israel pass through on dry land, He caused those same waters to come crashing down to wipe out Pharaoh and his army. Well, the Lord also, throughout the period of the Exodus and the wilderness, rescued His people from the Amalekites, later from the kings of Sihon and Og, and there were countless displays of this sustaining grace in the wilderness. For 40 years, the Lord fed them with manna from heaven, with water from the rock. He led them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Their clothes didn't wear out. Their feet didn't swell. And while a whole generation does fall because of their unbelief, he does bring Israel into the land. He took that second generation with Joshua into Canaan. But why did he do that? What was his reason? Well, Moses actually had sang about it in the song right after the Exodus, in Exodus 15. There at the banks of, bank of the Red Sea, he had said this, Exodus 15, 13. You, Yahweh, you have led in your steadfast love, your chesed, your covenant love, the people whom you have redeemed. Love took action to fulfill the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that present word of past mercies is now coming to this generation preparing to go in the exile. And Jeremiah is saying, you need to look back. You need to see what Yahweh has done in the past. He's been a refuge in which to hide. He's been a rock on which to stand. The Lord has been faithful. The Lord has loved His people. The Lord is willing to show grace to those who've done foolish things. And the exile which God's people are now facing is like a second wilderness experience. 
It's a time of suffering because of sin. It's a time of deprivation and dependence. They're going to have to depend on the Lord. But the Lord is saying to His believing people, you will survive this sword too. This time of the Babylonian sword. You will find grace in the wilderness. I will lead you to that place of rest. I will not forsake you. There will be a second exodus, a day of restoration, and you will come back to the land. And why will that be the case? It's not because of you. It's because of who I am. It's because I am a God who keeps my covenant love. And yet, in the midst of all this suffering, which is very significant, famine, destruction, deportation, and death. In the midst of all that suffering, the people of God still have doubts. You ever have any doubts? You ever struggle in your suffering to believe that God is faithful? Well, that's what's going on with this people. Now, these doubts are reflected in verse 3. The Hebrew is a little difficult here, and there are debates about how to understand the text because there are differences in the original Hebrew and the Greek translation of the Hebrew. But here's what Jeremiah seems to be saying. And I think he's conveying a response of the people back to God who just comforted them, telling them of look back to the past and see my mercies in the past. And literally it reads like this, verse 2. From afar, that is in the sense of long ago, like at Mount Sinai, Yahweh appeared to me, or Yahweh appeared to him, to the nation of Israel. And the idea would be this. Yes, O Lord, the people of old found grace. Yes, it's evident that you used to love us. We used to experience your favor. We used to see your hand of power in the days of old. But as Gideon once asked, if Yahweh is with us, where are all his miracles that our fathers told us about? Lord, where's your deliverance? Where's the sign of your favor? Yeah, we can look backwards and we can see your mercy in the past, but is your love confined to the past? What about now? Indeed, what about this moment when the Babylonians are deporting our children? What about this present state when we're being told, entering into a pagan land, to build and plant there? And we know these pagans will desecrate everything we love. What good will it do us now if the Lord was gracious in the past? Yesterday's grace won't get me through today's pain. If God hides Himself in our current affliction, then His compassion years ago doesn't have any practical value. Now brethren, have you ever felt this way? Has it seemed to you that God's love and mercy were locked up in some bygone era and not available for you. You, know, you can think about all the historical figures, all the heroes of the faith, and it was nice that the Lord used them and did things for them. We can think about past revivals. But what about now? What about me? What about this situation? Or could it be that you think that God's love has been locked up in a season of your own life in the past. I used to experience the blessing of God. I used to feel the comfort of His love. I was like the psalmist in Psalm 52, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants 
for you, O Lord. And then he begins to describe how I used to be in the throng of people going up to assembly and I, I led them. But now my soul is downcast. Why are things different now when I'm under the weight of trouble? Lord, here I am drowning in difficulty and You seem to be distant. Darkness is closing in. Afflictions are squeezing. And maybe we ask ourselves in these situations, is there grace to find in this present wilderness? Am I going to taste the goodness of the Lord in this short earth? Here you are wanting to live for the Lord. You're struggling through cancer. Our business struggles or family turmoil, or health problems, or pain. Has God's love vanished? Is He really going to lead me to rest when ruin seems to be everywhere? Matthew Henry, a man who knew much affliction in this life, the death of his first wife, losing four children in infancy, chronic health struggles, he perceptively writes here, It is hard to take comfort from former smiles under present frowns. Does that ring true in your soul? Well, the Lord, I think, responds to the fears and doubts of His people. And Yahweh says that His love is not tied to former days. He says, literally, verse 3, yes, with an everlasting love, I have loved you. Now, three things are striking about this statement. The duration of God's love, the nature of God's love, and those who receive God's love. So let's think about those. The, the duration of God's love, which is emphatic in the text. Normally in Hebrew, the, the verb comes first with the subject. You would expect, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. But that's not what it says in the word order. It says, yes, with an everlasting love to emphasize, I have loved you. While people may be full of doubt saying, well, no, God doesn't love us now. The Lord can't love us now in spite of all that's going on. The Lord ardently says, yes, indeed, surely, with an everlasting love, I have loved you. Now, brethren, when we give any thought as to who God is, we should recognize His love can be nothing other than everlasting. Because God's attributes are not parts of God, or they can't be less than who God is. God, God's attributes are God Himself. And God is everlasting. Psalm 90, verse 2, "...before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. As long as God has been, His attributes have been in action. Now, we have no trouble, I think, believing that when it comes to God's everlasting holiness, or God's eternal wisdom, or God's endless truth. But we stumble, I think, over the nature of everlasting love. Love that had no beginning, Love that will never come to an end. And likely that struggle has more to do with the objects of being loved, unworthy sinners, than God Himself. Because attributes can't be inferior or less than who He is. So look at what the Lord is saying to His people here. 
you can go back before the beginning of time, before the world was formed, and there you will find my love. You won't find when that love started because it's an everlasting love. And everlasting love doesn't have a beginning. And yes, I know that's beyond your feeble capacity, beyond the limits of your finite mind to conceive. Nevertheless, before the world was, I loved you. Or to put it further in Paul's language in Ephesians 1, in love He predestined us. He set His love on us in Christ in eternity past. And then the Lord can go on to say, as far as you look forward in time, you're not going to find an end to this love. There are no gaps in it. There are no missing moments. There are no alterations. This love from God never ceases. Though the sky will vanish and the earth will wear out like a garment, my love for you will never be extinguished. Brethren, those are inconceivable words. They're too wonderful, too glorious to fathom. God Himself is the fountain of living waters. He never runs dry, and therefore His love will never run out. That is amazing. Are we truly taking that in? And yet the richness of this truth is not exhausted. For the duration of Yahweh's love is only part of the marvel here. Second, there's the nature of love itself. Yahweh says again, verse 3, Yes, with an everlasting love, I have loved you. Now the verb used here for love is a very common word for love. It's used to describe love for all kinds of things. Food, money, gifts, people. However, in the book of Deuteronomy, in the book of Hosea, and the book of Jeremiah, books that are focused on God's covenant with His people and rebukes for breaking His covenant, this word for love takes on a particular nuance. For those books, this verb to love relates exclusively to the relationship of faithful love between God and His people which is like the love a husband has for his bride. This is why both Hosea and Jeremiah rebuke God's people for spiritual harlotry or adultery because they're running after other lovers while they're denying their own husband. Yahweh is the husband of His people. That's the heart of the covenantal idea. And you see the background of this, even as this verb is used elsewhere in the Bible. For instance... In Jeremiah, sorry, in Genesis 24, Moses writes of Rebekah being brought to Isaac. You remember Abraham had sent a servant to go find a wife for Isaac, and he brings Rebekah back to Isaac, and he's meditating a field, and she comes up, she quickly veils herself, and the text just simply says she became his wife. Oh, that weddings were that simple. And the text says. And he loved her. He loved her with the love of a husband to a wife. That's the word being used here. Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. The same language is used to describe Jacob's love for Rachel, Elkanah's love for Hannah, and then what Solomon exhorts every husband to have for his wife, 
Proverbs 5.19, be intoxicated always with her love or be exhilarated perpetually with her love. This is a passionate love. The kind of love that would make Jacob's seven years of service for Laban waiting for Rebekah's hand seem like but a few days. That's the very nature of God's love to His people. Does not Zephaniah 3.17 tell us that God's love to His people is like this, that Yahweh, the covenant God, is quiet in His love, rejoicing over us with singing. That is, with shouts of joy. Or listen to Isaiah 62 verse 5. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Beloved, this is the love of delight, of a never-ending joy over a beautiful bride. And the nature of that love maybe would be easy to grasp if we were talking about the love the Father has for the Son, or the Son has for the Father, or the Father and the Son have for the Spirit, because then it would make sense to us, because their affection for one another is perfect in every way. Maybe even if we contemplated Love like this from God towards man in the garden. There the Lord walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. There everything was very good. Adam and Eve were created in God's image and knowledge, righteousness and holiness. They imitated God's moral character. They knew about God and they knew God experientially. They had near communion with Him so that nothing hindered their fellowship. But Yahweh, the covenant God, isn't speaking here to man in his perfected state before the fall. For thirdly, note the objects who receive God's love. These are sinful Israelites who are presently struggling with doubts and fears, but nevertheless believe. And to them, the Lord says, yes, indeed, surely, with an everlasting love, I have loved you. Now the you is a you singular here. And I think the sense is, I have everlastingly loved the whole collection of my people whom I have set apart for myself, whom I have given to my Son to redeem. The Lord is telling us even as individuals who believe in Christ, before you were thinking of me at all, when you were helpless, ungodly, sinful enemies, already I loved you. In love, I predestined you to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. We might frame the Lord's response to these people here in Jeremiah like this. Why am I still talking to you in the midst of all these troubles? Why am I still calling out to you through the prophets? It's because my love for you doesn't stop. Why have I made you promises of restoration? It's because my promises made to Abraham weren't a momentary impulse, a, a flash in a pan. No, those promises were an eternal commitment. But brethren, how much more do we this morning see the demonstration of God's love? We can see beyond what those of Jeremiah's generation could see. They had promises to which... They could look later on in Jeremiah 31. We'll have the promise of the new covenant 
promises of sins forgiven, of abiding communion with the Lord. But we this morning have those promises fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus takes up the cup at the Last Supper and says, Behold, the new covenant in my blood. What is He saying? I am the sacrifice to cleanse you. I will bring you into a state of reconciliation with the Father. I will wash you thoroughly and lavish you with the love of God. I am proof of the everlasting love of the Lord. So if you're here this morning and you have doubts and fears, if you're facing difficulty and you're struggling with embracing the love of God, how sure can we be of the Lord's everlasting love? You look at Golgotha's ugly hill and you see the Father crush His Son as He's clothed in our sin. You hear the cry of dereliction, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? You see the Lord Jesus naked and bleeding, weak and dying, cursed and under wrath. And why is He suffering like that? For your sin and my sin, dear believer. Jesus is spared not to liberate our souls, but not just to liberate us, to welcome us as beloved children. Do you understand? Jesus died the just for the unjust that He might bring our souls to God. Here we are deserving wrath. We should be cursed. But Jesus bore the curse to save us from our sin and to usher us into fellowship with God so that we would abide in a state of love. Brethren, when you look at the cross, you who believe in Jesus, you see that the words of Jeremiah 31.3 are true. Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. You may feel forgotten at times. You may think the Lord is distant. The precise emotions the exilic generation are feeling. And they ask in Isaiah 49, or they say, Yahweh has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And the Lord responds, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? The answer, of course, is no. But even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. What comfort should flow from our hearts in view of love like this? Love that cannot stop. Love that has no gap. Love that was willing to give the perfect Son of God for our ongoing peace. This should bring us security. Augustus Toplady, 18th century hymn writer who wrote the hymn Rock of Ages, he reflects on our security in another one of his great hymns called A Debtor to Mercy Alone. And I'll quote the last verse of that hymn. He wrote, My name from the palms of His hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on His heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. And then listen carefully to this. Yes, I to the end shall endure. As sure as the earnest is given, the earnest is the giving of the Holy Spirit, the deposit guaranteeing our, our inheritance. 
Yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given. More happy, but not more secure. The glorified spirits in heaven. Now what does that last phrase mean? It means those just men made perfect who've already died and they've gone to be with the Lord. They're more happy than we are. That's true. They're free from all the sorrows of this life. They're free from their own sin. Pain and disease no longer rack their body. They're at home with Jesus, which is far better than anything in this world. Yet, more happy, but not more secure are the glorified spirits in heaven. We too have been sealed with love in the Spirit. We are just as loved as they are. And why is that the case? Because everlasting love has been visited upon us. Brethren, that love can't wear out. It's not subject to change. It cannot be severed from its object. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Christian, do you believe this? I know you love Romans 8, but do you actually embrace it? Is your soul secure in Christ? Do you trust that nothing is going to change His heart of love for you? Are you confident that that is true? Not because you're so good, but because He's so great. That love is fixed on you. And it can't stop. And it will pursue you all the way to heaven. And even when you get there, that love will remain fixed on you to all eternity in the future, inspiring your praise. If that doesn't fire your worship, if that doesn't delight your heart, or cause you to want to live for the Lord, I simply don't know what will. And friend, if you're here this morning and you don't know this love, maybe you know it here, but you don't know it in your heart, you haven't embraced it in Christ, let me tell you, you're not going to find any other love like this. This is the problem with God's people in Jeremiah's day. They were looking for love in all the wrong places. I quote an old country song. So Jeremiah rebukes them. He tells them, look, all your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. In Judah's distress, under the punishment God brought for her sin, the idols in whom you trusted, the pagan nations that you depended on, where are they? They're gone. They have nothing to offer you. Well, brethren, the same is true for us today. Look, people are fickle. They're going to fail you. Your friends are going to fail you. Money can't buy you out of your problems. Money can't fix your emotional distress or your bodily pain. It's interesting the people who seem to have the most money are the most miserable creatures on the face of the earth. Just look at Hollywood. They're miserable. And then there's pleasure. Pleasure is fleeting. Yes, you can escape your trouble for a few moments, but then it's right back on top of you when the fun ends. And what are you supposed to do? What's your hope for deliverance? Who is going to seek you always? Who's going to stand beside you in the face of every difficulty? Who will love you when you are unlovable and have nothing to offer? Only the Lord. And His love is everlasting. An unconditional love. A love that simply will not let you go. And He never lies. He never quits. He never grows weary in showing you love. He is dogged in His affection. And when the devil comes to tell you otherwise, you look 
by faith to that cross and you know he's a liar. There, the love of God has been demonstrated. The Father in love sent his Son into the world to save sinners. And Jesus proves just how much he loves us by loving us to the end. So look to Christ and believe. Or dear believer, if you already embrace that truth by faith, understand you don't just have the cross as proof of love. You have your whole life as the proof of the love of God. Look at all the evidences of your past, of the enduring faithfulness of God. Look at what it says, verse 3, we'll end with this. Yes, with an everlasting love I have loved you. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Or better, I have drawn you with steadfast love. How were you awakened from your darkness and sin so you would know the Lord? Everlasting love. How was your blindness removed and the light of the gospel erupted in your heart? The everlasting love of the Lord. How is it that you understand anything of God's truth at all? The everlasting love of the Lord. Why do you seek God now? Why are you even here this morning? The everlasting love of the Lord. He set you free. He liberated you. You know Him because He drew you to Himself. The Lord didn't merely love you in the past. His love took action to save your soul in the present. And Jesus promises... All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will not not cast out. I will not not cast I will never cast you out. We clean it up. What does it mean? This love is never going to stop. Believe this love, dear brethren, and yield your heart to Him who loves you so deeply. May the Lord help us to embrace the truth about the love of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do marvel at your love. And even as we profess our faith in it, Lord, we pray you would help our unbelief. We ask that you would strengthen us to set our eyes of faith on the enduring love that you possess for your people. And we pray that that deep abiding affection which gave Christ for our salvation would compel us to live for You. Lord, stir our affections. Let us not be those who intellectually assent to the love of God, but let us be those experimentally touched with Your love, that we would live every single day knowing that I am a soul loved by the Lord, and that love will never let me go. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen.